The following message entitled Wisdom Refuted, part three of the series, O Church Arise, was given by Joe Ryer on the 24th of January, 2016. To learn more about our church, please visit sgcindianapa.org. If you have a Bible, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth that we will see today in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Lord, it's a truth that many of us have heard many times. But Lord, it's one that we need to hear over and over again. And Lord, we pray we would experience the power that's described in this passage. Lord, we pray our lives would be different as a result of this passage. And Lord, we, uh, we just love you. We love that you love to speak to us. And we pray you would do that this morning. And Lord, we ask this in your name. Amen. Well, my name's Joe. I'm one of the pastors here. And probably like many of you, I uh, went to bed and woke up this morning uh, experiencing pains in my body that I have not experienced in a long time from a combination of sledding twice yesterday and shoveling uh, for quite a long time as well. So uh, if you nod off today, I totally understand. Well, we are in a series on 1 Corinthians, and the title of this message is Wisdom Refuted. If you're not familiar with the, the book of Corinthians, it is a, a letter, it's one of my favorite New Testament letters, because it's written to a real church with real people and real challenges. So I want you to imagine that you were assigned the, the task of being in charge of this church and trying to help this particular church. So if you were writing to a letter to a church and you knew they were struggling, they were struggling with personal sins. They were, some were getting drunk at communion. Some were fighting with one another. Uh, some were uh, going kind of bonkers with spiritual gifts. They were, they were just biting each other. And there was an overall lack of love uh, towards one another. There were divisions in the church. And you had one topic that you were allowed to speak on for one hour. What would be that topic? If you were assigned that the weight of this particular church, the church in Corinth, is your responsibility, and you have one hour with one topic to solve their problems. Where would you begin? Would you begin with addressing their sin? Would you talk about what's moral and what's immoral? Would you describe a personal growth plan of if you do this, this, and this, then all will be well? Would you have them hold hands and sing songs about unity? Uh, what would you do? Where would you begin? Well, in the chapter we're going to look at this morning, Paul begins um, at a place where he, he stays and returns to often throughout all of his letters in the New Testament. So look at verse 17 and 18, and we're going to eventually make it through to verse 31. This is Paul's answer to where you begin and where you stay and where you stay tethered to throughout your Christian life. Verse 17, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Of God. So Paul uses this phrase 
in the book of Corinthians, uh, he uses the phrase, the word of the cross, or the cross. And that was his, if you had to boil down everything he was about, that was his boiled down answer to everything we need to know about as Christians. So it's good for us to know, what, what does that mean? What is the cross according to Paul? Well, the cross is basically a shorthand, Paul's shorthand for who Jesus is, the fact that He's God and man, what He accomplished, the fact that He never sinned, and He died as a substitute for our sins. And not only did He die, but He rose from the grave. Not only did He rise from the grave, but He ascended to heaven and is now seated at the right hand of the Father and will return one day. Well, that's the shorthand. And Paul says something really important that we're going to examine here in a moment. He said this word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. Meaning folly to those who don't believe Jesus Christ has anything to do with them or anything to offer to them. But to us who are being saved, listen to this, this is present tense, it is the power of God. And so Paul lived with these Christians for 18 months. And he's written letters to them, instructing them. And everything that he is teaching them is tied to this idea of the cross of Christ. You could picture like a hub on a bicycle wheel. The, the cross, the gospel is at the center. And then the spokes become different aspects of the Christian life. And what Paul wants them to know and what he wants us to know is that we, we never move on from this central theme in the Bible, the cross of Christ. Because we might be thinking, or you might be thinking, we need something meatier. We need something deeper. We know that Jesus died for our sins. We need something more profound. We want to understand something broader and deeper and, and more intellectual. And Paul, he was a very intelligent man. He could have done that. But he knew we need this central theme we need to pound it into our heads and understand it more and more. And so, it's not that we just need to know it, but we need to experience the power of what it means to have Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. We need to understand what it means to look at our brothers and sisters in the church who are struggling in sins and see them through the lens of this cross. We need to look at the lost and the dying through the lens of this cross. And that's what we're going to do today. So point one, the cross of Christ is the power of God. Not was the power of God, but is the power of God. But to us who are being saved, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So we're going we're gonna to land on the power of God for a, a few moments. But before we do that, verse 18 actually divides the human population into two groups. Divides our room, this room right now, into two groups. It would divide Indiana County and Armstrong County and Westmoreland County and Western Pennsylvania and the entire state into two groups. And those two groups of people are those who are perishing and those who are being saved. And the perishing are those of you who you don't think Jesus has anything to do with your life. You don't think Jesus can save you. You don't think you need to be saved or rescued. You think it's foolish. And I would say all of us in this room, at one point in our lives, myself included, 
I was in the foolish category. When I was in high school, if you would have told me that I needed to trust in Jesus Christ, I would have laughed at you. I would have mocked you. I would have made fun of you. I would have thought, that is ridiculous. What does a man who lived 2,000 plus years ago have to do with me? I don't need him. I don't want him. I don't want anything to do with him. Well, the Bible would say that I'm perishing. We're going to go back to that. So that's the one group. The other group is those of you who have trusted in Christ. You have been saved. You are being saved. You're being made and conformed and transformed into the image of Christ. And One day you will ultimately be with the Lord. And the good news of the Bible is every and any kind of fool can be transformed into the other group. We're going to see this a little bit later, but if you're new to the church, you're sitting among many of us who were a bunch of fools prior to Christ. That Jesus came in and invaded our lives and changed us and transformed us. And so we love, love, love to introduce men and women to Jesus Christ. Well, Paul says this idea that I don't want to skip over. He says the word of the cross is powerful. It is the power of God. And so I want to speak to those of you who are Christians, that you have trusted in Christ. Because he's speaking to Christians primarily, and he's writing to the Corinthian church. But these Christians were being influenced by many philosophies and teachers who represented all kinds of systems of thought. And so they, they might have started out with this pure understanding of Jesus Christ, but they began to be influenced by other ideas and philosophies. And Paul's going to keep bringing their attention back to this central idea that Jesus and Jesus alone is the source of our life. But you can imagine, I can imagine being among the Corinthians or being, let's say, in New York City today, and going up to the average, intelligent, um, successful businessman or woman, and saying, you know what? The answer to your life's problems is in this man named Jesus. He was God, became a baby. No, that's confusing, but that's what the Bible says. He lived among us. He then was killed, crucified brutally, and then he rose from the dead and that has everything to do with your life today. And you can understand why people think that's ridiculous. Why they think that is foolish. Why they think that, I don't need that Jesus Christ. And at the end of this chapter, Paul's going to explain to us how we go from thinking that's foolish to staking our lives on it, which many of us have. But the point in this first verse of 18 is that this message is powerful. Once our eyes are open to Jesus, there is real power. And now my desire, our desire as pastors, is that as a church, we would grow in experiencing the power of the Gospel. The power of what it means to be in Christ. Because, I'm going to confuse some of you, because we have old Star Wars movies, we have new Star Wars movies, they get all blurred together. I have no idea which number it is, but the one that I would call the original Star Wars where Luke becomes the Jedi in training. You remember that one? So I was a little boy. I was excited. Uh, Luke is now at the swamp. He's in the Dagobah system being trained by Yoda. He, he figures out he's going to be a Jedi. But he doesn't quite know how 
to use the force. He's, he's coming to some understanding. Obi-Wan's told him, go meet Yoda. He's going to train you. You have something inside of you that is unique. And there is a power to be wielded. And so, Luke is in the swamp. He's learning to pick stuff up. He's falling on his head. He's, uh, at one point, he has Yoda upside down on his feet. He, he's trying to learn how to work out this power that he has. Well, becoming a Christian, in a sense, is like being declared that we are all Jedis by some miracle of the universe. And the Christian life, after that, is walking that out, like Luke being trained by Yoda. And Yoda is like this master Jedi who wields the force in a very powerful way. Well, spiritually speaking, the Apostle Paul, he's like our Yoda. He understands what it means to be, have this new life in Jesus Christ. And all these Christians in Corinth, they have become Christians, but to greater and lesser degrees, they don't quite realize the full extent of what has happened to them spiritually. And so he's teaching and training and encouraging and exhorting because they have a power from God that they're not completely aware of yet. And I just want to remind us of, of some of the ways that we have this power from God because of us being in Christ. So listen to this. Here's just three. There, there are more, but three main ones from the Bible. When you became a Christian, when you trusted in Christ, the rule of Satan is no longer over your life. So in other words, the Bible says that by nature we are enslaved to sin. We are ruled by Satan. He is our master whether we acknowledge him or not, whether we believe in him or not. Think about the first time you really got tangled up in sin. Him and his minions were cheering. They were excited. They were setting the bait for you and they were celebrating. When you became a Christian, his rule ended in your life. He no longer has any more authority or power in your life. So you can't say as a believer in Jesus Christ, He made me do it. Because He no longer has authority or power in your life. Listen to Colossians 1.13-14. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. There was a transfer. We once were in this kingdom of darkness. I was enslaved into this kingdom of darkness. And Jesus set me free and brought me into His kingdom. And so spiritually speaking, you are His. You belong to the King of kings. That's the one that you pray to. That's the one that you go to. That should give you hope and faith as you seek to follow Him and live for Him. Here's another thing that is now a new power that we have. By nature, the Bible says all of us, because of our sin, are objects of his wrath, meaning we are lawbreakers. And by nature, we have broken God's law over and over and over again. And the Bible says that God's the judge. And so, as a judge, a good judge, a perfect judge, a holy judge, when he looks at lawbreakers, he has every right to slam that gavel down and give us our just punishment. But in Christ, what happens is Jesus takes our punishment. 
So when that gavel slammed down over your life and my life, if you are in Christ, it did slam down. But the punishment all went to Jesus. Jesus took our sin upon Himself. He received the penalty for our sin. And so what that means for you and I as believers in Jesus Christ, here's how Paul says it in Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation, or I like the King James Bible translation on here, there is therefore now no damnation, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You will never be punished, eternally speaking, for your sins if Christ took them for you. That is good news. But some of us feel so guilty all the time. Jesus took our guilt. He paid for it once for all. Here's one more area that we experience the power of the cross. By nature, I said we we are under the rule of Satan, but we're also slaves to our own sinful nature. The reason you and I did many of the things that we did is because we were slaves to our sinful nature. And so I can remember times before I was a Christian trying to quit certain behaviors, and I couldn't do it. I'd try, make promises, I'd cut off all my hair, I'd change the way I look on the outside, I just wanted to be different, but I couldn't do it. I was an absolute slave to my sinful cravings and desires. But then Jesus came into my life. Listen to what Romans 6, 6, and 7 says. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. A believer in Jesus, all of us who trust in Him, The Bible declares we are no longer slaves to those sinful cravings, impulses, desires. We don't have to obey them. We don't have to give in to them. We don't have to feed them anymore. And Jesus, He breaks that power. Now part of it is we we need to learn to walk out this new life. And the Bible is clear throughout the New Testament that this new life battle, it really... It really starts at the desire end, the, the heart-mind end, much more than the action end. So, for example, if you're trying really hard not to do a sin, you say, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it anymore. I'm not going to do it anymore. But I want to so bad. Well, it's the want to in your mind and your heart that Jesus can help you with. He was crucified not just for the outward actions, but for the inward desires as well. He, he can kill it all. And so that is real power that we have in the cross of Christ that only Jesus can set free. Only Jesus can change us from the inside out. Study any religion or philosophy. There is no answer for this deep, sinful nature problem that we have by nature other than Jesus Christ Himself. So any philosophy or religion, you're working hard. You're trying to find inner peace or you're trying to obey a certain set of laws and you will inevitably find out you can't do it. It doesn't work. It doesn't work perfectly. It doesn't work all the time. And so you're, 
you're worn out, and then you're, you're despairing once again. It's only in Jesus that we can have this power for the new life. And, and the reason this matters is Paul knows that the Corinthians were being influenced by all kinds of philosophies and ideas. And he wants them to know you have so much more than you realize in the cross of Christ, in what Christ has done for you. And the answer isn't look over here and look over there and look out there. It's look at Jesus. He has all the answers that you need. Look at verse 19 and 20. One of the things that faith alone and Jesus alone does is it destroys human pride and arrogance. It cuts right across our desire to boast in ourselves, to boast in what we have done. Listen to what Paul says. For it is written, he's quoting the Bible, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debaters of this age? Has, God, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? See, what, what Paul's saying here, if we're going to identify with a philosophy or a religious system that has the center on what we do with it, and how well we achieve things, and how well we speak, and how well we articulate the the system that we're into, well, that will puff us up. That will rob glory and honor from the Lord, and it will put it on ourselves. So in our day and age, there are many philosophies, thoughts, religious ideas, that if you follow them, you have great people, and you have failures in those systems. That is not what the Bible does. That's not what Jesus does. It says you're all in Christ if you're all in. And, and the Corinthians, it's important to know that not only were they bombarded by systems, but what was popular during their time and in their city was to really celebrate people that spoke well. These great orators would come to town and they, they were known for their skill of debating and arguing and reasoning. So we might set two or three of them up on stage and just let them have at it. And what was of a far lesser importance was the content, was what they actually were teaching. And Paul and the Bible is the exact opposite. We're going to see in a few weeks that Paul purposely didn't come with eloquent speech. Because he wanted people to land on the content, to be focused on Jesus and not on these flashy speakers. So he asks a set of rhetorical questions and he's going to call people out one by one. So in verse 20, he says, where is the one who is wise? So we have the Lord here and then we have these fake debaters that, are going to, that he's going to call out one by one. Where is the one who is wise? So when he asks that question, he's not talking about like the kind of wisdom in Proverbs, skill for living. He's talking about someone who has a well-articulated philosophy for life. And they are confident because of their philosophy. And there might be five of them, five men and women. They all have different philosophies, but they're very confident in them. He's saying, where is the wise one? Do they have an answer? To know God, to know the living God, to have their sins atoned for. What what is their answer? Does their philosophy or system prepare them for this life and the life to come? 
So there were many popular philosophies of the day. But the whole, the whole idea was the Greeks as a whole, they were known for this, this pursuit of this coherent thought system that, that would order their world. And they would be so self-confident about it. So one popular quote from the first century was a simple phrase, the wise man is king. The wise man or the wise woman is king. In other words, one who has this reasoned out philosophy for life and sticks to it, nobody can touch them. They are king. To another, to the wise man, all things belong. Now we have in our day and age our own pile of philosophies and ideas. Not just in the world religion camp, but you think of Dr. Phil, Oprah Winfrey, Dr. Drew, uh, Wayne Dyer, uh, Deepak Chopra, um, and the list goes on and on. They all have systems of living, philosophies to live by. Listen to one by Deepak. He said, in the midst of movement and chaos, keep stillness inside of you. In the midst of movement and chaos, keep stillness inside of you. In other words, if your life is falling apart, if your kids are falling apart, if your finances are falling apart, if everything that you were living for is falling apart, just be still. Like what in the world? You, you can't be still. You're, you're panicking. And, and here's the, the opposite. The Christian faith would say, in the midst of that chaos, if you are in Christ, you have a living God who keeps you even when you cannot be still who faithfully will watch over you. And when your faith is just riding the waves of life, Jesus is with you. He's got you. He's the one. So the focus isn't on you. It's on Him. And there's so much more peace and joy in Him. I am a big sports fan, and so many athletes have philosophies for life so and and they infiltrate into christians so you know the, the popular idea that you can be whatever you want you can be whatever you want i was thinking about this this morning so let's say lebron james and myself went to the same high school i'm about 10 years older than him but let's say we're the same age and a coach tells me and tells him if you guys practice every day if you dribble basketballs every day if you lift weights every day you guys can be whatever you want. You can be NBA superstars. Well, for LeBron, by the time we're in, you know, like fifth grade, he's probably six foot tall. He's rippling with muscles. I'm about four foot tall, and there's no muscles. There's just skin and bone. And maybe I can dribble, but I'm not going to make it to the NBA. I am now all of five foot eight. He is six foot eight. He is rippling with muscles. He's one of the fastest basketball players that's ever played the game from one side of the court to the other. God made him different than he made me. And so that philosophy of life, it will work if you're good at the thing you're applying to, if you have some natural abilities and talents from the Lord. But if you don't, that's a setup for a miserable life. You know, it's just me dribbling my basketball around. Well, I really thought I was going to be a professional basketball player. It ain't happening. Well, that, that's kind of a humorous one, but all these ideas... And, and philosophies, they, they, they get into our minds. And I think Christians seem most vulnerable for these world philosophies when we're struggling. 
when we're in crisis, it's kind of like life is going well. I bet the answer's in the Bible. Life isn't going well. I'm going to go to the self-help section of Amazon or whatever it would be. And I must say there's nothing good at all to learn, but there is so much more than you realize in knowing and thinking about and enjoying Jesus Christ. So he says, where is the wise one? Can't stack up. Then he says, where is the scribe? The scribe in uh, Bible times, that was the Old Testament scholars that would write out the Old Testament, study the Old Testament, examine the Old Testament. These guys knew the Old Testament so well, but they looked at it so close that when the promised Messiah, Jesus, came to earth, they couldn't believe he was crucified. They had no category for a great deliverer. A great king who was promised for centuries is going to die a brutal death. They tripped right over it. Then he says, where is the debater of this age? That was the, the clever speakers. He's saying they, they can't stack up either. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. So if you're not a Christian, the answer for your life is not clean yourself up. It's not exercise and diet and having a clear mind. It's staking your life on Jesus Christ. Putting your trust in Him. Running to Him. And that's where all life not only begins, but will be found for the rest of your life and eternity. Jesus said this about Himself. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to Me, comes to the Father except through Me. I'm the way, meaning there's only one way. I'm the truth, meaning there's only one truth. And I'm the life. I am the life giver. I am the spiritual life giver. And no one comes to the Father except through me. So if that's true, if salvation is entirely based on Jesus, then we should have no room for pride or arrogance or boasting or looking down on other Christians. This was a major issue in this church in Corinth. There was divisions because people were aligning themselves with certain leaders. They were aligning themselves with certain particular spiritual interests. And they just were not seeing one another through the lens of Jesus Christ. And so they were ranking themselves and looking up and down towards one another. And that's just not the way God wants His children to be. You know, think of it this way. Mark told me this this morning. You know, imagine you know, we're all in a frozen lake somewhere, a huge lake. It's icy for some reason. Somebody talked us all into walking out on it, and we all did it, and now we're all trapped. And a helicopter comes by and just starts plucking one of us out one at a time. And let's say Mark was number five, and I was number 3,000. Well, if I got to the helicopter, and by the time I got there, Mark is signing autographs because of his great rescue, how he was, on, he was the top ten out of the thousands that were rescued. And he was boasting all about it. Well, that's what it would be like if we are a boastful Christian church or people. We have nothing to boast about. If Jesus rescued you, he rescued you. Now you responded, you trusted, you believed, but he's the Savior. And so there's absolutely no room for boasting according to 
the Bible. So verse 22, we're going to pick up the speed a little bit. For Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. So he keeps going back to this same idea. Now, it begs the question of how in the world did you and I come to believe in Jesus Christ? The second part of this chapter, he's going to answer that question, which brings us to the second and last point. The cross of Christ is the power of God to all who have been called by God. So consider your calling. When that phrase is used, that, that means you're calling to, to salvation. When God, the creator of the universe, called you by name. Verse 25, For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. So what Paul's going to do here, he's going to prove his point. He's going to say, Corinthians, look around. You didn't become Christians by your cleverness, by your nobility, by your cultural influence or power. No, you became Christians because God called you to himself. And you place your faith in Jesus. In other words, God does not select Christians like a high school gym class or an Ivy League college. So, you know, those of you who are athletic, you probably have these really fond memories of high school gym class. You, you were one or two on the list to be picked, and it, it happened, or you were the captain. You are probably the captain. So there's no bad trauma. For those of us who weren't as athletic, all you're thinking is, not last, just not last. Just not last. If he could be last, that's fine. I, I feel bad for him, but I just don't want to be last. Well, God does the exact opposite. He starts at the end of the line, the least likely, and starts plucking and calling and pursuing and bringing us into his kingdom because what happens when we come in, the only thing we can boast in is him. I didn't do it. Think of an Ivy League college. There's some of you in this room who probably have gone to Ivy League colleges or could get into Ivy League colleges. There's nothing wrong with that. But aren't you thankful that God's church, God's kingdom is not set up that way? Because in Ivy League colleges, there are a whole bunch of even college-bound students that do not get in, that cannot get in because of test scores or grades or whatever. Well, God is the exact opposite. Any and all can come to him through Jesus Christ. Look at verse 27. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Even the things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are. Why? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So his way of salvation cuts across our natural desires and our cultural philosophy of just work hard. Just trust in yourself. If you fall down, pick yourself up and you'll be okay. That's not what Paul's talking about here. No, God comes after us. He pursues us. The worst of us, those who are just laying in the gutter, he comes in and he picks up and he infuses with life and he brings in to his family and his kingdom. 
So I want you to think about this for a moment. If you were a complete fool before you trusted in Christ, so you were arrogant, your speech was vile, every other word was a swear word, you were a thief and a liar and disrespectful to your parents and even your grandparents, you were, even your grandma, you were a fool too. You didn't like her. You were mean and vile. And then Jesus calls you and you respond. And you become a Christian. And you're now in his family. Think about what you would be like. You would not boast in yourself. You would boast in him. I once was this. Then I met Jesus. Now I'm this. He's changing me. All the boasting would go in Jesus. Think about it this way. If you were so weak and helpless, either physically or mentally, that you couldn't do anything for yourself in life, say you couldn't, couldn't hardly do anything. Your thoughts are all jumbled. Your physical body is so broken. And God shows up and he calls you. And Jesus fuses you with life. You become a follower of his. Where are you going to boast? Who are you going to boast in? You're going to boast in him. Think about this. If you were so low and despised, so maybe you're a criminal. You've been in prison. You've been in jail. You've been in rehabs. You've, you've stolen and lied and, and done so many things that you know are wrong. And right in the midst, the, let's say the peak of your addiction, just stolen again, you just used again, and Jesus shows up, and he calls you, and you respond. And you're infused with life, and you're now following him. What are you going to boast in? You're going to boast in him. You're going to delight in him. You're going to tell people about him. You're not going to talk about yourself. You say, meet this man, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, the life giver. And that's Paul's whole point. So look at verses 30 and 31. This is true of all of us, no matter where you met Jesus, what station of life you're in when it happened. Verse 30, And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. So that's the true wisdom. Righteousness, meaning we are clothed and credited with His absolute perfection. Sanctification, meaning to be set apart or to be made holy. If you are in Christ, here's the wild thing. You can go from criminal a saint in a moment just by trusting in Jesus Christ, being set apart as holy. And redemption. We have been redeemed. We have been bought and paid for, purchased. And with that comes freedom from sin, freedom from the penalty of sin, freedom from the slavery of sin, all because of Jesus. So then verse 31 ends at the most appropriate place, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts Boast in the Lord. So my prayer for me as a Christian and us as Christians in a church is that we would be very boastful. We would be very boastful. We would be vocal in our boasting. But the object would be Jesus. When we'd sing, we'd sing with joy and gratefulness because of Him. When we talk to people, we do so with faith and joy because of Him. When we tell someone how we became a Christian, there'd be a lot more Jesus than there would be us in that story because our heart's desire would be to boast in the Lord. And that's why Paul says, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let's pray and the band can come up. 
Lord, we, we want to be a boastful people. We want to trust in you and give you all the glory that you truly, truly deserve. Lord, even as we sing this final song, may it be an opportunity for us to boast in you, to sing to you, to delight in you. And Lord, I, I pray for the church that we would all in an increasing way experience the power of the cross in our lives. That we would be different as we come to understand in just deeper and uh, more profound ways what you have really accomplished for us. And uh, Lord, we love you. and We will give you all the glory for any change that we experience. And we ask all this in your name. Amen. You guys may stand.